We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Now let us come again before God in prayer. Quickly, and how fast would you like to grow as a Christian? Would you like to have a kind of a fast-track Christianity? I think many of us would want to do that, to be able to acquire a wealth of knowledge and experience in double-quick time and be a successful and experienced Christian. If we could only find a pain-free, effortless quick-fix solution to obtaining Christian maturity and spiritual success, that is what we would like to have. That's what we want. But many people do not like to read instructions. I remember when when our youngest daughter was in her teens, we found out fairly uh, soon that she had the ability to read instructions and to assemble things. So as a sort of a, in her mid-teens, we gave her this job of assembling a piece of furniture and uh, we left her to it. And then she called me and her brother in because there was a part that was heavy that needed to be lifted. And so she told us what she wanted and we did it. And then I lifted a piece that she had set out to the side. And she said, set that down. If I need you, I will call you. 
Wow. But she read the instructions. She knew I never read instructions. She had set everything out. She was in control and she was going to stay in control. And many years later, she's still in control very much of her father. You get a new phone or a new computer and you just want to start using it. Even furniture that requires assembly, you start putting things together and only when you get stuck will you read the instructions. Many manufacturers and suppliers realize that people don't read instructions and usually they provide what they call a quick start solution, a quick start set of instructions. That is how we would like our faith to be. Quick start Christianity. Let me get on with loving Jesus rather than getting stuck with all the doctrine and all the stuff that people seem to argue about and debate about but has very little practical value. That's how we feel. But Paul has not taken that approach in the letter to Romans. For six long chapters, the only thing that he has done is to teach us, to teach us, and to teach us, to teach us doctrine. And now, in chapter 6 and verse 11, we're only just now ready to get going to make it happen, because now we have an instruction, something for us to do. We like to jump in and get going. We jump in too quickly to the doing parts of Christianity without spending sufficient time to understand and appropriate the basic truths of what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, can you imagine a conversation with a surgeon who's just about, he's just about to carry out a complex operation on you and he tells you that he's a, a get-on-and-do-it kind of person. He said he didn't bother with medical school and all those boring reading of medical textbooks. He just likes to get on with the job. I think I would like another surgeon, please. I want my surgeon to have done well at medical school, to have read all the books and to have reread them. I want to him to have served his time with the best of medical surgeons and be up to date with the latest research and with the latest learning. As Christians, we should learn to know why and how we can be victorious over sin and why we can live the new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul has taken the time to tell us. He has told us what the problem is in our lives. He has taken time to tell us how God has solved that problem through Jesus Christ. And because he has led that foundation we can now go on and build upon that foundation 
Because now we know why and how we can do. It is because what God has made us in Christ. The work of God in Christ is foundational to everything else about Christianity. The danger with charging off is that we charge off and we try everything out in our own strength And that inevitably leads to failure and disappointment. There are times when Christians, particularly from other churches, come and say something to me. And they ask for a solution. And I begin to feel that I can't give a solution here in in a couple of sentences. I, I need to strip a lot of stuff away back and go back and lay a foundation before I can even begin to address the issue that they're raising. You see, sometimes we try to erect a building that has no foundation. And then when something near the top goes wrong, you want that little thing at the top to be fixed. And you realize it has to all be stripped back to lay a foundation that was never laid. And that's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. The fundamental lesson that we need to learn is that we need Christ. Now I remember in one of my summertime jobs that I worked in as a university student, that I worked with an ex-RAF instructor. That's the, the, the Royal Air Force instructor. He told me about the aircraft hangars, the, the big buildings that the aircraft were stored in, and how those buildings had to be brushed by people. Hangar after hangar, building after building meant that there were miles of ground that had to be brushed in the days before machines were available to do that kind of job. And the instructor says that an operative went through three weeks of training to learn how to brush. And I couldn't believe. What do you tell somebody for three weeks? on how to brush. He said what they had to learn was this. That this way of brushing, this length of stroke, this speed of doing it, that that is the best way, that that is the most efficient way. Because if everybody started to invent their own little way of doing it, it wouldn't be efficient It wouldn't be effective. And he says the reason why it took three weeks is is to convince the person that the way that they are being taught that that is the very best way of effectively doing the job. And what Paul is doing here is he's putting us through the training so that we will learn that there is no better way to live the Christian life other than depending upon the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We are so prone to want to add in our own touch to things that it takes us a long time to learn that we are or we should be completely dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says then we are to count ourselves. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Now that word count was used in commercial dealings as a kind of a bookkeeping term. There's no emotional investment or involvement in the activity. You're just to count it. You're just logically to see it that this is the way that it is. The way that things are is that we are dead to sin and we are alive to God. You are to count on that. You are to judge that as the truth. That truth is based on the truth that we have been incorporated into the Lord Jesus Christ. As I reckon myself, as I count myself dead to sin and alive to God, I can then begin to think about the implications of that. As we have already seen, dead to sin doesn't mean that we are now unable to sin, It means that the mastery and the dominion of sin, that that has ended in our lives because we are now in Christ Jesus. I am not defeated. It is not determined that I am going to fail. I am able not to sin because we are now in Christ. Paul has told us what the truth is about our position in Christ, and we have got to agree to that, to see that that is the way that it really is with me now. This is who I am. This is the person that I I am. I am dead to sin, and I am alive to God. All Paul is asking of us here is to just act upon the truth. This is the reality. What we are in Christ does not become true when we believe it. It is because it is true that Paul calls us to count ourselves, to reckon ourselves. This is the way it is. We are dead to sin and alive to God. This is the way that it is. Therefore, realize that that is the reality that you now live with. The first step in our pathway to holiness is to accept the truth about ourselves. I need to know and count on it that God has taken me out of Adam, has joined me to Christ, and I am no longer subject to the reign of sin and death. But I have been transferred into the kingdom of God's abounding grace. The way forward is to believe God. But you say, I feel that I'm a failure. I feel hopeless. I feel inadequate. 
open up your Bible and see what God has said about you. Has God got it wrong? Has God miscalculated? Has he allowed you as a special case to slip through the net? No matter how I feel or what I think, I have to count on what God has said. I am dead to sin and I am alive to God. That is just simply the way that it is. There are no special cases. There is no bronze or silver membership here. We are all in the one membership of being dead to sin and alive to God. It's no wonder that Paul has taken six chapters to tell me this because I am slow to learn. Now, it's not... I'm not saying that I am unable to learn new things. I personally can learn and easily learn biblical and doctrinal subjects in a certain way. Now, I haven't counted them, but I'm sure that I have well in excess of 50 to 60 commentaries on the book of Romans. I've got really old ones, some very technical ones, that explain the language, some very theological ones, some practical, some devotional, and some of the latest commentaries that have been written. I have books of sermons on the book of Romans. So in that sense, I can learn about exactly what it is that Paul is saying from a whole different variety of various teachers. I love that kind of learning. But the learning that Paul has spoken about here is different. Count yourselves. That's something different. That takes me a lifetime of learning and relearning and learning again. I have learned this. I will learn this. I learn it again. And when I have learned it, I will go off then soldiering off on my own until God teaches me again that I have to reckon myself dead to sin and alive to God. I'm now actually afraid to say that I have learned something. Because every time I say that, I find God teaching me it again. And sometimes learning again is very painful. So I'm satisfied to say that I am learning. Learning to reckon. Learning to count myself dead to sin and alive to God. That's not the kind of learning that you get from a book. That's not the kind of learning that you'll get from a teacher. You can get guidance and help from a book and from a teacher. But here is something that must 
settle in upon your heart that it becomes your second nature. Where you see it, you get it, you understand it, you live by it, you act by it, it determines, it directs the direction that you take in life and how you walk along life. But specifically, what does it mean to be alive to God? It means that we have been reconciled to God. We were dead to God, dead in our sins. I remember back in the times when Margaret Thatcher was Prime Minister, and one of her ministers, it was actually the Northern Irish minister at the time, had actually texted some message about her and called her something rather rude. And then he had to meet up with her in public. Now, she was quite gracious in the way that she handled it. But can you imagine you've done something bad against someone? They're a person who's in authority over you, and you have to meet up with them. How's it going to be? We're going to have to meet up with God. How is it going to be? What did I do to God? What did I do for God? What rebellious attitude did I have towards God? Paul says, reckon this. You're alive to God. That actually means God has reconciled you to himself. You see, we ourselves like to fix things. I'll write a letter to God and I'll fix it. I'll say a prayer to God and I'll fix it. Paul is teaching us here, God has fixed it. God has reconciled you to himself. That's what it means to be alive to God. We were dead to God, dead in our sins. We were exposed to the wrath of God. God was angry with our sins. He was angry with us. That old self that God was angry with died in Christ and is And we are dead to sin and alive to God. We are reconciled to God and God is reconciled to us. No hostility. No anger. No bad atmosphere. No friction. Nothing to be overcome. Nothing for us to fix. Because God has fixed it for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. To be alive to God means that we are now a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. We have been born again, born from above. A new birth has occurred. Being alive to God means we are no longer slaves to sin. And Paul says, reckon it. Count on it. 
get it into your head. Get it into your heart that this is what it means. Being alive to God means we have a new direction in life, a new set of goals. Paul expresses it this way in Philippians chapter 3. He said, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but this is what I do. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead, I press on. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Verse 11 to 14 contains a list of commands for us to obey. And Paul is now dealing with our sanctification. And in our sanctification, we have duties related to our personal holiness. As we approach sanctification, we are made aware that sin is a battle that needs to be fought right throughout our lives. Paul said in verse 12 of chapter 6, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you, that you obey its evil desires. Sin does not have to rule. But if we ignore sin, it will reign over us. We must not allow sin to be our master. It must not become the king in our lives. Sin is not just a problem to the body. It tempts us to obey through our internal evil desires. Such things as envy, as jealousy and dissension. Paul says in verse 13, Do not offer yourself, any part of yourself, to sin as an instrument of wickedness. If we are told not to offer ourselves, it's because there is the likelihood that we will offer ourselves. There is the need to guard our minds so that we do not give our minds over to, to become an instrument of wickedness. <clears throat> what we do in our minds will determine a great deal of what we will become as Christians. If we fill our minds with a diet of what is in this culture, then we will be behaving like the culture, desiring what the culture desires, behaving as the culture behaves, and having the same kind of prejudices and sympathies that the current culture has. If I feed upon spiteful thoughts in my mind, I shouldn't be surprised if I start saying spiteful things, if I start doing spiteful things, if I lend my mind to be an instrument of wickedness by feeding it with thoughts that are not pure, that are not righteous, then how can my mind become an instrument of righteousness? We also need to guard our eyes and our ears, guard what we watch, Guard what we hear. How quickly 
We can give our eyes and ears over towards that which is wrong. The tongue is part of our body that can so so very quickly and easily be given over as an instrument of wickedness. We should use the tongue to share the gospel, to worship God, to build others up in their faith. That is to give the tongue over as an instrument of righteousness. When you think of the words that you're going to say today, maybe you have a little speech already planned, something that you feel that you just have got to say to somebody. Is your tongue going to be an instrument of wickedness? Or an instrument of righteousness? What kind of mind designed the conversation? What kind of motivation presses you forward? We need to also guard our hands on our feet, feet that we might be that we, we may not give them over to be instrument of wickedness. In order to protect ourselves, we need to realize that we are in a daily battle against sin. We have to be on our guard. Now, many English translations use this term, instrument of wickedness, instrument of righteousness. It might be better to translate that as weapon of wickedness. When the enemy comes to you, do you offer parts of your body to them as a weapon that they can use against you? Can you imagine that you're in your home? You hear a noise, someone is breaking in, you have a weapon to defend yourself. You see that someone's coming towards you with ill intent. They're going to harm you, they're going to damage you. And you've got a big club. You say, here, here. Use this. Have this. Pick that and hit me with it. There's a weapon. I'm giving you this weapon so that you can beat me up with it. That doesn't make sense, does it? Why then, says Paul, do you hand over your mind, your eyes, your ears, your feet, your hands, your tongue, that it might be used as a weapon against you, a weapon of wickedness, an instrument of wickedness. It doesn't make sense. You see, we've got to reckon these things out. We've got to see this the way that it is. In order to sum up the exhortation, the the commands or the imperatives that Paul provides us here, he gives us further information if you like, summarizing what he has already said in verse 14. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Sin is an alien power. It does not belong to who you are in Christ. It will no longer rule over you. Paul gives a reason for this, that we are not under law, but under grace. To be under law is to accept the obligation to keep the law and so come under its curse or condemnation. To be under grace is to acknowledge that our dependence is upon the work of Christ. 
Our dependence is upon the grace of God. So for six long chapters, Paul has been laying a foundation. And basically in verse 11 through to 13, he is now giving us imperatives, commands. Something for us to do. Reckon that this is the way that it is. This is who you are in Christ. Basically what Paul is saying is this. Live it out. Let that be exactly as it is. Be the kind of person that God has made you. Do not try to be something else. But reckon this is what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank